Hey, good morning, everybody. And a special good morning to everybody in the North Auditorium. Uh, it was really exciting for me to walk back there and see the auditorium nearly full and see this one full. And it did make me think about Easter. Um, next week, we have five services scheduled. And I got thinking about some things I just want to share with you because seeing both auditoriums full on Palm Sunday made me think about Easter. And so I want to encourage you to do three things. And here's the first thing is I'd love for you to pick which service right now, just kind of get locked into your mind, which service that you'd like to attend. We have two on Saturday, 4 and 5.30, and three on Sunday, 8 o'clock, 9.45, and 11.30. So here's the thing I'm going to ask. You know, I know that many of you are loyal, long-time New Springers. If it's possible for you to get up early in the morning, the 8 o'clock service on Sunday would be really, really helpful. And so if you can, if you can make that, and a lot of you is like, I, Mark, I just don't run that early. I get that. But if you, if you can, it would be great because the 8 o'clock service on Sunday will create space in the other services. Or if you want to move to Saturday night, that's a possibility too. So I, first of all, I'm just so excited that so many people want to attend New Spring. And then the second thing I want to encourage you to do is to invite somebody to experience New Spring with you. Every year, I hear a story after months after Christmas Eve or months after Easter, and it'll go something like this. Mark, I never was a God person. I never went to church. I never wanted to go to church, but a friend invited me to come to Christmas Eve or Easter, and I got I saw the upcoming series, and I kind of got hooked on that, and then I came, and I went to that whole series, and, the, and they'll tell me about some moment when they accepted Jesus Christ or prayed the prayer with me. And then by the time I meet them, they're committed new springers. But here's the thing it always reminds me of. There are people who will attend church on Christmas Eve and Easter who won't come any other time. And so I understand that, and I just think, well, okay, let's invite them to New Spring. Because here's the deal. The, the reason why a lot of people won't attend church, except for those holidays, is that church has been so dead, dull, and boring. And so you know what happens when you ever get them in New Spring and experience that, then they'll say, oh, I didn't know church could be like that. So I want to, and I have friends who are actually members of another religion, and we've, been, we've had good friendship, and I've invited, but I've done it carefully and kept it in the zone, but I was really pumped to find out they're coming next week for Easter. So I just am really excited about that, so invite somebody to come. Yeah, please. You, you just don't know. I mean, you can, I, mean, I, I, we had, I told you this before Christmas Eve. I met a man here. Um, in December, who had told me the previous Christmas Eve he was going to take his life on Christmas, and a friend invited him to Christmas Eve, and he came, and he accepted Christ, and now it was a year later, and he and his family were actually here first Wednesday. So I'm just sharing with you, you have a marvelous opportunity. And then the third thing I'm going to encourage you to do, New Springers, is come early uh, to whatever service you're coming. You want to make sure you get back to the coffee bar and, you know, coffee shop and get your kids checked in and, and get a seat. So let me just encourage you to do those three things. Our series is called I Believe, and that's the strongest statement you can ever make. And it's the one thing God cares about more than anything else is what you believe. But today's topic, if you just take it as a pure historical fact, is unlike the others in our series in that it requires no faith. We've had a talk called I Believe in God, I Believe in Creation, I Believe in Sin, and next week... I'll talk about I believe in the resurrection. All those require faith. But if you think about today's topic as just a purely historic fact, it requires no faith to say, I believe in the crucifixion of Jesus. Because that's a historical fact. As well as any, any fact from antiquity is documented, the crucifixion of Jesus is documented. It's documented by historians. It's documented by pagans, for crying out loud. 
So consequently, the idea that Jesus died, that's a, that, that's a known fact. But as I've gotten ready for this talk, there's been two words that have just been in my mind over and over and over. And a lot of times when I feel that, I have a sense that God is telling me, look, Mark, focus here. And so here are the two words that I'm going to lay before you today. And these words, even though it may not sound like it, they will require faith. Here are the words. Christ died. Christ died. And you say, well, Mark, you just said a moment ago, Jesus died. What's the difference between Jesus died and Christ died? A, a universe of difference. One of the great blessings that I've had in almost 31 years here in Wichita is I've had the opportunity to have close, warm friendship with the Jewish community. Um, and I've been invited to speak in both synagogues. I've spoken multiple times in the Orthodox synagogue. And the, and the rabbi who served that synagogue for a long time, he and I were buddies we were lunch buddies. We just we had a lot of great times together. And here at New Spring, we've, we've hosted a lot of events for the Jewish community here. And you, you do realize that our, our Jewish friends and us, we share the lion's share of the Bible. If you're holding a Bible in your hand from Genesis all the way to Malachi, we have the same Bible. But we have a, <laughs> there's a junction in the road. There's a Y in the road o- over this statement, Christ died. Let me tell you where, where, where the problem is. See, when we use the term, the name Jesus, and we put it with Jesus Christ, we sort of assume that that's his name. Like, my name is Mark Hoover. Jesus is his first name. Christ is his last name, you know? And, and, and that's sort of the, the feeling that people have. You know, it's like, it's like any other name where there, where there are two names, Jesus Christ. But what you and I need to understand is that Jesus is a name, but Christ is a title. Um, not that I'm comparing individuals to Jesus necessarily, but uh, if you use the, the expression President Obama, you understand that both of those are not his name. Obama is his name. President is his title. Queen Elizabeth, Governor Brownback. So when you use the name or the term Christ Jesus, Christ is a title. Jesus is his name. The name Jesus, we know how he got that. The angel came to Matthew and said, or came to Joseph and Matthew and said, his name will be called Jesus. Well, that name Jesus was a common name in the first century. Uh, back in the Old Testament, the Hebrew form of it was Jehovah Hoshea. It was shortened to Jehoshua, then Joshua. And the Greek form of it was Jesus. It just means God is our salvation. I can understand why God wanted Jesus to have that moniker hung on him. But Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. So when you hear Christ Jesus, that's like saying Messiah Jesus. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, Paul is saying, look, this is the most important thing I ever had delivered to me, and I want to deliver it to you. Christ died according to the Scriptures. Well, therein lies the issue with a lot of our Jewish friends because they're looking at this and they're saying, Uh, He can't have been the Christ because he wasn't supposed to die. And in their defense, when you look at the prophecies in the Old Testament, you you know that from Genesis 3.15, God was promising to bring the Messiah into the world. But where it really gets interesting is when King David was on the throne and, and God made a deal with David. We call it the Davidic covenant. And in that deal, God said to David, one of your descendants is going to be on the throne and have an everlasting kingdom. Well, the Jews looked at that and they said, as we would say, when Messiah comes, he will be a descendant of King David and he will have an everlasting kingdom. 
And this became especially important to the Jewish people because when they went into captivity, final, the final stage of the captivities in 536 BC, they had no more kings. And so consequently for these centuries leading up to Jesus being born, they were saying, we're going to have Christ, we're going to have Messiah, and when he comes, he's going to be a descendant of King David, he's going to overthrow Rome, and he's going to rule forever. That's what they were hoping for, that's what they were expecting. So the idea that Christ died didn't make any sense. You know, when you live as long as I've lived, there's certain memories that are burned in your brain. 9-11 is forever burned in my brain. But there's one day that's even more burned into my psyche. I remember one night growing up in Fort Worth. I was seven years old. I was in the back seat of my parents' car as they, my dad was driving north on I-35 toward downtown Fort Worth. And out of my back seat window, I looked out and I saw the outline of the skyscrapers, the buildings in Fort Worth, lighted. And to my seven-year-old mind, I knew they weren't supposed to be lighted. See, in Fort Worth, it was a big thing. They turned on the outline lights of the buildings um, on Thanksgiving night to signify that Christmas season had begun. And I knew it wasn't Thanksgiving yet. It was November the 21st. And like yesterday, I remember asking my dad, why are the buildings lighted tonight? And dad said, President Kennedy is in town. The next day, I was in my second grade classroom, Forest Hill Elementary School. And when I went to class that day, it's strange, isn't it, how these memories get burned into your brain and how you can remember things from that moment? There was a girl in my class who didn't, who didn't show up for roll call. Her name was Carla Clark. Turns out Carla came to class midway through the day. And when President Kennedy was in downtown Fort Worth and giving a little, little speech, uh, before he gave his speech, he walked the rope line, shook hands with people, and he actually got close enough to Carla where Carla was able to shake his hand. That afternoon, in my second grade class, there was this big notepad that was so big that it sat on an easel, and every day my teacher wrote the story of the day. She was in the process of writing the story of the day, talking about President Kennedy being in our town, and she was just writing the sentence about Carla getting close enough to shake the hand of the president when the intercom crackled and... Mr. Roten, our principal, said, I have bad news. President Kennedy's been shot in Dallas. And he, that moment, we didn't know if he was dead. I know this wouldn't be legal today, but Mr. Roten said, I'm going to ask all of you to pray for Mrs. Kennedy and the president. And you know, that was 52 years ago. And since that time, I've seen the Zapruder film and all kinds of things in the Kennedy assassination. You know what my problem is when I look at that day? I think he wasn't supposed to die. A, 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 a person not in good mental health with a $12 rifle and a 30-cent cartridge blew away the most important man in the world. He wasn't supposed to die. That's why I sort of get it, even though I, I don't agree. I get it when people look at this and say, well, if he's the Christ, why did he die? You know what? You might be surprised to know this. Did you know that even the followers of Jesus shrugged their shoulders and said, well, I guess he wasn't the Messiah. Next week, we'll, we'll talk about the resurrection, and we'll, we'll have a good time with that. But I just want to call your attention to the afternoon, the Sunday afternoon after Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus is um, he's, he's, he's watching as a couple of his disciples are walking to a little town called Emmaus outside of Jerusalem. It'd be like if you're walking to Derby or walking to Andover. 
And so these two guys are walking, and their heads are down. They're depressed. And Jesus walks up and joins them, and they don't know who he is. Now, you tell me Jesus doesn't have a sense of humor because he kind of plays these guys a little bit. I mean, it's Friday afternoon he's hanging on a cross, and it's Sunday afternoon he's kind of, kind of kidding with these two guys. I'll tell, you, tell you how it went down. These two disciples, they, were, they had their head down on the ground. Jesus walks up and said, if you'll allow the vernacular, what's going on with you boys? And they said, well, you know, we're just, we're just dealing with the stuff that went down this weekend. And Jesus said, what stuff? And they looked at him like, are you crazy? And they said, you must be a stranger in town. You know, and here's when they answer his question. They said, um, our leading priests and other religious leaders, now this is so interesting to me. If I could be transported to any spot in the Bible, I want to pick this spot right here on the Emmaus Road. Because these two disciples are explaining to Jesus what happened to him. <laughs> our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. Oh, <laughs> there's Jesus with nail prints in his hand. Oh, they crucified him. Now, here's what I want to call your attention to, and this is serious. Verse 21. We had hoped he was the Messiah, the Christ. You see, in their minds, the last thing that Christ was supposed to do was die. And yet, the Bible says Christ died. Now, let's pick up that conversation that Jesus is having with these two guys because Jesus now is going to talk to them. And I want to just read to you what Jesus said back to them. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, that's why I would like to pick this particular spot because I would have loved to have heard Jesus explain all the references in the Old Testament that prophesy his suffering and death. That would have been cool. Well, what did he say to them? Maybe he picked Psalm 22. You know, we love Psalm 23, but what few people understand is Psalm 23 is part of a, a trilogy of messianic psalms. The reason why Psalm 23 is such a great funeral sermon, and I've used this so many times, it's almost like Jesus is preaching his own funeral in Psalm 23. Psalm 24 is the resurrection. Who is this king of glory? Let him in. Open up the gates and let him in. But Psalm 22 is one of the most graphic depictions of crucifixion that you'll ever find anywhere. And yet the weird thing about it is it's written 1,000 years before Jesus was born and 700 years before the Carthaginians invented crucifixion. And probably 900 years before the Romans perfected it. And yet, if you open up Psalm 22, and I'll just, I'll just cherry pick and read a little bit of it. Maybe Jesus quoted this to them. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. If Jesus had used that, those two guys would have said, oh, yeah. The Roman soldiers, they rolled dice for his, for his tunic. And, yeah, they... they pierced his hands and his feet. And yeah, somebody hanging on a cross, you could, you could count all their bones. And that's just for starters. Read the whole psalm when you get time, and you'll see. Maybe Jesus used that, or maybe he used my favorite. You know, here's the thing. There is one chapter in the Old Testament written 750 years before Jesus is born, and yet when I read it, I want to ask, 
Who else in human history could this chapter be talking about? You, you, you could be here today and you could say, Mark, I'm not even sure I believe all this, but let me just lay down this track and you think about it and just see, could this be about anybody else except Jesus Christ? And yet it's written 750 years before he was born. Isaiah 53, he suffered the things we should have suffered. He took on himself the pain that should have been ours. But the servant was pierced because we had sinned. He was crushed because we had done what was evil. He was punished to make us whole again. His wounds have healed us. All of us like sheep, we have wandered away from God. All of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has pierced on his servant, placed on his servant the sins of us all. I don't know, maybe Jesus quoted that. On the other hand, maybe he just told them some stories that they knew very well. Maybe, maybe he just reminded them of a couple of days they, they celebrated every year. See, back when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, God wanted to get them out. And he wanted to bring them to their own land. So he picked Moses and said to Moses, I want you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Well, Pharaoh was the Egyptian ruler, and he wasn't interested at all in letting his slave labor force walk out. If we've learned anything about despots and slavery, we've learned that wicked leaders don't want to let slaves go. And so Moses went and said, let my people go. My God says, do it. And Pharaoh said, we got hundreds of gods here, and I don't know yours. So God gave Pharaoh nine calling cards. If you remember the old movie, The Godfather, God made him nine offers he couldn't refuse. Except he did. No, every time something, I mean, and God did all kinds of things. I mean, some of them were humorous. Some of them were God's gentle way of saying, look, Pharaoh, I, I don't want to get really tough with you, but I just want to let you know I'm really, really powerful. I mean, he did things like turn the water to blood, and then he did the one thing that would have got me, he sent frogs. <laughs> That's kind of funny. And then, I mean, you know, and, and the Bible's very graphic about the frogs were everywhere. They were in the, you know, outside, they were inside, they were in the kitchen, they were everywhere. I mean, you stick your fork in a deal, pickle hops away. I mean, if I... <laughs> If I'm in Egypt, I'm like, okay, let them go, please. But Pharaoh was stubborn. God sent disease on the cattle, lice. But number nine, he sent darkness. He just turned out all the light. You know, when you experience darkness in your life, that's God getting really serious with you. I could be talking to somebody here today and you say, Mark, you know, God has been trying to get my attention, but it's just turning dark right now. Listen, if you get darkness in your life and you have a sense that God is reaching out to you, don't be stubborn. But even in the darkness, Moses went to see Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, look, get out of here. I don't ever want to see you again. And Moses said, fine, you will never see me again. God has one final calling card, the 10th. And God says to Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I haven't been able to get Pharaoh's attention. Tonight, I'm going to get victory, or in a few nights, I'm going to get victory over all Egypt's gods. Now, here's what you have to do for you to protect yourselves from what I'm going to do. God said, I'm going to send the death angel over every house, and I'm going to take the firstborn out of every family. But if you want to be spared from this, God said, I want you to do the following things. Take a lamb. Keep it in the house for four days. I want you to get acquainted to what your sin is going to cost you. 
And then on the fourth day, I want you to kill the lamb. I want you to prepare it as a special dinner that night. But I want you to take some of the blood, and I want you to spread it on the doorpost of the house. And God said, when the angel passes by, the death angel, if there's blood on the doorpost, the firstborn will be spared. And it went down just like that that night. And, of course, Pharaoh at that point said, get out of here, leave. And the Israelites did. But that became a celebration for them year after year, the Passover. Or maybe Jesus reminded them about the Day of Atonement. You know, to this day, that's still the most hallowed special day on the Jewish calendar, somewhere in September or October. But on the Day of Atonement, here was God's instructions to Israel. By this point, they're in the wilderness. The tabernacle's been built. And I don't want to take a long time talking about the tabernacle. It's a big tent. It was a worship place in the wilderness. The, there was a little chamber inside of this tent that was called the holy place, and it was divided into two rooms. On the outer, the outer room, there was the um, holy place that had the, the lampstand and the table of showbread and an altar. But on the inside, there was, the, um, there was just one piece of furniture. There was, a, there was a box made out of wood covered in gold called the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the, of the Ark of the Covenant, there was a golden lid called the mercy seat, two golden cherubim that faced each other. And in the inner chamber, that was where the presence of God was. And not just anybody could go into that chamber. You know, in the outer chamber, the priest would go in daily and they would do the, the, the sacrificial things and the worship things that were necessary for the priest. But in the inner chamber, only the high priest could go in and only one day a year and he could only go in in order to make atonement for the people. And he had to go in with blood, sprinkle the blood seven times on the mercy seat. But before he went in there, he would select two perfect lambs. And they would cast lots, or they would, we would say today, they would, they would roll dice. And one of the lambs would be selected to be the sacrificial lamb, and the other lamb would be the scapegoat. And what would happen is, the lamb that was to be sacrificed, the high priest would go in and sprinkle the blood seven times on the mercy seat. And the other lamb, when the high priest came out, he would ceremonially confer all the sins of the people and they would put it on that lamb and it would be led out into the wilderness never to return again. Maybe Jesus reminded them that they went through that every year. And, and I've actually had the privilege of being a guest at our Orthodox synagogue uh, on a day of atonement and the fast and the ceremony and then the, the meal afterwards. Maybe Jesus talked about all those things. I don't know. But here's, here's what we need to think about today. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, the old system, that was a system that they were all familiar with. That was, that was what the Jewish people had been part of for years. And in Jesus, I mean, the scripture is saying the old system was only a shadow, a dim preview of what was to come. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year, Hebrews 10, 4, one of the biggest verses in the Bible. It is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Well, what was going on back there for all those centuries 
a millennium where in the Jewish economy they were bringing sacrifices. Well, think about it. If you were God and you've got this event in the middle of human history that's going to be the turning point or the salvation point for all humankind, and you've got hundreds if not thousands of years that were going to lead up to that event and thousands of years that were going to follow after that event, how would the people before that event show faith in Jesus Christ? Well, God had to give them symbols so that they would understand that their Messiah was coming, that their, their Christ was coming. And so year after year, they brought those sacrifices. I mean, we Americans, we get this part more than anything else. It was as if God was letting them put their sins on credit, plunking down the plastic. By coming and offering the sacrifices, they were saying, God, we know we're sinners. And every year they'd get rolled forward and rolled forward, and it would be a bigger pile and a bigger pile. But still, they had done what God asked them to do and what could be done before Messiah came. But guys, this is why it's so important. When John saw Jesus coming one day, he was baptizing, and he saw Jesus coming. And in John chapter 1, let me just read it to you, verse 29, the Bible says, John saw Jesus coming and said, look, the Lamb of God that, it's a verb there, taketh away the sin of the world. When Jesus came, no longer were the sacrifices needed to roll sin forward. No longer were the types and shadows and pictures and foreshadowing needed because Christ had come, the one who would take sin away. So, according to the scriptures, Christ died. He was crucified. And you know the story. They cried out for his crucifixion. Jesus was tried. Pilate didn't want to crucify Jesus, but he was weak-willed. You know, here's the thing. We won't talk about this because there's Roman history that goes with this. Pilate was in trouble with the emperor, and the last thing he wanted was his name coming up in Rome for any reason. And I can tell you the backstory of that someday if you want to hear it. So that's when the leaders, when they said, if you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. That's why Pilate was totally freaked out at that moment. And he said, okay, take him and crucify him. Now, you have to understand, Jesus' crucifixion was Roman. And in the Jewish world, there were limits to punishment, but not in the Roman world. Jesus was beaten with a whip. And the whip had a handle, and out of the handle were leather thongs. And the Romans, the goal of the beating was to inflict as much damage and remove the skin as quickly as possible. The Roman lictors were skilled at keeping the victim alive. Every once in a while they slipped up and accidentally killed somebody because the beating was so horrific. But there were pieces of zinc and iron tied into those leather thongs, sometimes pieces of bone. And there were some whips that actually had a hook on the end. Those were called scorpions. But as I said a moment ago, the purpose of these whips were to take the skin off the body as much as possible and as quickly as possible. So they beat Jesus. They slapped him. They pulled his beard out. They hammered a crown of thorns into his, bread, into his head. And then they beat him and ripped the skin off his body so much that Isaiah would say he didn't even look human. You know, someday it would be really interesting for us in a series just to look at the crucifixion of Jesus and look at the various expressions that we just take for granted. Let me give you an example of that. The Bible says they led him away. You know, that's an amazing statement. 
Because crucifixion was such an awful death. Cicero and Tacitus talked about how horrific it was. They didn't want to think about it. So awful was crucifixion that a person who was about to be crucified would often have to be dragged, screaming, or carried. And yet the Bible says Jesus was led away. He just followed. As Isaiah says, like a lamb to the slaughter. And then they put his cross on him. I think Jesus carried the whole cross because Pilate had a name piece on it. So I'm guessing he carried the whole cross. That was 300 pounds. So Jesus would have had it on his shoulder and he would have dragged it along. But no doubt, weak from the beating, he lost his footing. And Simon from Africa was asked to come carry the cross. And his tradition tells us that Simon became a believer and his sons became Christian leaders in the early church. That's the reason when Mark told the story about Simon, it's like everybody, we know him, carried Jesus' cross. And then he got to the place where he was crucified. And there, the Bible says, they nailed him there. They nailed his hands with spikes. Probably the nail would have gone in somewhere inside the wrist. And then they put a single nail through the tender part of the ankles. And you should understand that crucifixion is a death by asphyxiation. What would happen is somebody hung on a cross, the head would sink down into the chest cavity, cutting off the flow of breath. And so in order for a person on a cross to get a breath, he would have to pull against the nails that held his hands and push off against the nail that held his feet for every breath. And for six hours, Jesus hung that way. And we know that that was just the beginning of his suffering because about three hours into it, everything went dark. And according to scripture, Jesus not only dealt with the physical pain of the crucifixion, but he dealt with the guilt of all the sins of all the world. He dealt with God's punishment. We can't even begin to imagine what Jesus suffered. And hey, I know it's 21st century. I'm talking to somebody here or watching online or on television. And you would just say, Mark, I just, I don't get into all that. I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, know, I just don't understand why, why God would put his son on a cross and why somebody's necessary, necessary for somebody to die for my sins. That's because, A, we're sinners. That's because we don't think our sin is very serious. And we don't understand God. But, you know, could I just remind us all, and I mean mean this in, in the sincerest love, could I remind us all that God doesn't have to deal with us? We have to deal with him. I remember when I was 16 years old and took my driving exam, I didn't think I should have to parallel park. But they weren't dealing with me. I was dealing with them. And you know what? I think deep inside, we all know. We all know that there's justice, or there should be. I mean, how would you feel if you drove downtown, you went to the courthouse, and, you know, there was a sign that said, free day today. DWI, no problem. Don't worry about it. It's free day. You don't have to pay anything for it. Right? No problem today. Murder, it's a free day. Even we would have a problem with that, wouldn't we? We have a sense that there's justice. And really, all that is happening when you look at Christ dying on the cross is justice, God-style, real justice. Not the justice that we come up with as flawed sinners as we try to figure out what justice is in ways that serve our interests best. We're talking about the kind of justice that God demands. God put his son on a cross to pay for our sins. You know, for years, when I would buy a new Bible, I would have this verse and put it in gold 
are, are tooled in the cover of my Bible. It's Colossians 2, verse 14. Now I want to read a little part of verse 13 and read a part of verse 15. But let me read to you why I had this verse tooled on my Bible. God forgave all your sins and blotted out the charges proved against you. The list of his commandments which you had not obeyed. He took this list of sins and destroyed it. Hold on. By nailing it to Christ's cross. In this way, God took away Satan's power to accuse you. That is what the cross is about. Do you know, when the Romans would crucify, Romans were interesting people. They could be brutal, but they could also be, they could also be a people of justice. When, when the Romans crucified someone, they would put a placard over the head to show the, if you were walking by a cross and you saw somebody dying on a cross and you saw the placard over their head, you understood that they were, they were paying the price for that crime. If they had committed sexual assault, they would put it over their heads. If they had committed murder, it was over their heads. If it was treason, they would put it over their heads. And when they were finished dying, they would pull the placard off the cross as if to say the price for that has been paid. Well, Pilate didn't know what to put on Jesus' cross because he was innocent. That's why some of you have seen artwork, and in the artwork you'll see the letters I-N-R-I. Do you know what that, stands, what that is, what that word is? It's Latin. Those are Latin unseals, first letters of words. There's no J in Latin. It stands for Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, Pilate didn't know what to, what to put on there. And when, when the leaders freaked out over it, Pilate said, look, and he kind, of, you know, he kind of found his manhood at that moment. He said, what I've written, I've written. But God tells us what was on Jesus' cross. The way God saw it, the sins that you and I have committed and the ordinances that condemned us were nailed to Jesus' cross so that when Christ cried out, take telestai, it is finished, God could rip that off the cross and say, your sins and my sins and anybody who puts faith and trust in Jesus Christ is no longer guilty and Satan has lost his power to accuse us. That's what it's about. This and I'm through. You know, the people that saw Jesus crucified, they reacted in three different ways. One verse simply says, sitting down, they watched him. I just meant he's another guy, another dude dying on a cross. Let me, let, let, let me just show you what their response was to Jesus dying. So what? And that could be you today. It's like, okay, another Palm Sunday, another religious sermon. I'm here because I promised my girlfriend I'd come. My parents, I, t I told my parents I'd, I'd, I'd go to church today. Oh, you know what? Here's the weird one. You could be a member of a church since you were a little kid. Just another, another message. He just sat down and watched him die. Or your response could be like this. You know the centurion who was responsible for crucifying Jesus? You know, he was the one that saw the whole thing go down. He was the one that oversaw the nail. I mean, he saw Jesus walk calmly behind them, 
carrying his cross. He, 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 he watched as Jesus stretched out his hands to be nailed there. Freaked him out. He watched what happened. He, he heard the things that Jesus said from the cross. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. And then he felt the earthquake. And finally, when Jesus died, the centurion said, surely this man was the son of God. Do I, do I think he came to full faith and understanding? I, I kind of doubt it. I just think it was a moment where a guy that had been closed became open. I think it was, I mean, when, when he got up that morning, he's just like, got some, got some more badness to crucify. And yet when he got through, it was like, oh, this guy's different. I'm not sure I understand everything, but I'm open. And that could be you today. You could just say, when I walked in here today, I was closed, but... I'm not sure I believe this stuff, but I'm open. You know, I sure hope we see that guy in heaven, don't you? The guy that oversaw the nailing of Jesus' hands on the cross. I hope we see him in heaven. And there's no doubt about this third guy's response. That morning when he got up, he knew he was going to die. And more than that, he knew he deserved to die. He was a thief and a murderer and an insurrectionist. He was bad to the bone, as the old George Thorogood song said. When they nailed him to the cross, he was cussing and spitting. And when he first was hanging on the cross, he looked at Jesus and he cursed him. He cursed him just like his buddy cursed him. But after watching him, he began to know this guy was very different. And he looked over at Jesus in one moment and he said, Jesus, I mean, he, he didn't grow up in church. He didn't know how to pray. He didn't know how to start a prayer. But he just said, would you remember me? Don't you know at that moment everybody else had forgotten this guy? Everybody else had given up on him. But he said, Jesus, would you remember me when you come in your kingdom? And Jesus looked at him and said, to a guy that was a thief and a murderer, he said, today, you will be with me in paradise. One of the coolest things, I think, and you talk about hoping God keeps stuff on video. I would love to see the moment where Jesus walks into heaven after dying on the cross with his arm around a broken, sinful thief who only seconds before had said, Lord, would you remember Christ died for you and for me. Have you ever said, Lord, remember me? It's not about church. It's not even about being a Christian. It's not even about doing good things. It is about Christ dying for your sins and you saying, Jesus, Remember me. I am four minutes and 14 seconds in overtime, but I've got to pray this prayer. If you want to make Jesus Lord of your life, pray with me, please. Dear God, I am a sinner, but I believe you love me. I believe Christ died for me. I ask you to forgive me and make me your child. I believe Jesus arose and because of that, I want him to be the king of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you just pray with me, I want you to do something. Go back to guest services, take your talk to us card, or get one out of the seat in front of you. Just check the box, say, I pray with Mark. I have a packet I want to give you that's got a DVD, a book I wrote, and a coupon for a new Bible. And if you go to guest services back there, there's one back by the back door in the new building. Just say, I pray with Mark. Thank you very much for being here. I'll see you Easter. Easter.